0: Given your different backgrounds and contexts, what are some of the challenges you've each encountered uh, in the different regions you've worked in Um, and and how do safeguarding principles and policies perhaps differ um, between these different regions? Who'd like to open that one?
1: So I, I can go ahead on that one. Um, so I'm currently in Vietnam, and uh, this is the only country in which I have held a safeguarding position in, so I can really only speak um, to, 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 to what to we have uh, encountered uh, here in this part of the world. Um, with regards to some of the challenges, um, here in Vietnam, there's this concept of losing face. So not wanting to um, embarrass yourself or sort of, um, you know, be looked down on. And so matters, you know, regarding uh, well-being, psychology, counseling, safeguarding, It's very difficult to get through to parents um, that some of these issues that they do not believe are safeguarding issues are, Um, so to get them to accept it and to actually acknowledge that um, some things that they might be doing um, could be considered harmful um, towards their children has has definitely been a struggle Um, and simply in this part of the world, mental health and safeguarding child protection is just not well understood yet. Um, so so there's been a lot of barriers just to try and to get um, parents to see that, um, for example, using physical punishment can be considered physical abuse. Um, to them, it's, well, my parents did it to me, and their parents did it to them, and this is how it is, so sort of butt out. Um, so, it, you know, that, that's definitely been a challenge but being able to come forth with research that's not Vietnam-based, that's not, you know, U.S. based. This is worldwide research statistics that show, um, you know, uh, that that these types of issues affect children of all ages, of all races, in all different parts of the world. That's really helped me um, overcome some challenges when it comes to, um, to, to yeah, having parents get on board and um, And with regards to principles and policies, um, that's a really difficult question that I'll have to think about a little bit more. So I'll pass the floor on to someone
2: else. I think um, picking up on what you've said there, Jennifer, when I think of some of the challenges that we encounter as a boarding school in the southeast of England, I think what you've described there, if we have an overarching concept, is, is the normalization of what's happening to those young people because it's happened to them and therefore they don't see it as unusual and I think that's something that we struggle with and one of you know one of the particular issues um, as a school I think that we deal with quite regularly are things that are happening outside of school at parties and then we get the fallout of those issues within school and I think You know one of the areas that we've had to really address is actually educating our parents about what the appropriate things are and the measures that they should put in place in order to ensure that their parties are safe and about getting them to realize that some of the behaviors that they think might be normal aren't (laughs) and, and are actually a little bit unsafe um So it was a really interesting parallel there between what you were describing and and what we see, but in a very, very different area in a different context. And, you know, I think one of the biggest issues that we also have when dealing externally is that we have such different thresholds and such different policies and procedures, depending on which local authority we're dealing with. Um, Wellington College sits on the border of three counties so we're very often dealing with three local authorities which are very very different but also because our borders have got addresses in different areas of the country then we have to deal with different safeguarding boards and, and with different children's services and that can often be a challenge um first of all in order to actually understand what the different thresholds are between different local authorities but also the form filling and the paperwork can be vastly different from one region to another as well. So I think that's something that we, we you know, it's not a struggle, but it's a challenge.
3: I, I'm probably going to sound like I'm piggybacking off Jennifer and Deleth there, but, you know, but that's probably because, you know, irrespective of where we come from, there are some things that are universal. So how we experience, you know, trauma is is universal, how we experience risk is universal. But I think children don't always have the access to the same rights. And I think in our part of the world, that's the UAE, for example, where we've got 202 nationalities. And I think Delet also alluded to this in what she said, you know, the definitions of what is acceptable and what is not are so varied. So um, for us consent, it is not even a concept in the Asian subculture, right? Um, The threshold of being 18 is not relevant in so many other parts of the world. Uh, the 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 age of consent is different. You know, is is underage drinking acceptable? Uh, so the definitions are so varied, and I think one of the challenges we faced initially um, is not having something that is uh, binding. So law, legislature, statutory guidance, which are relatively new to our parts of the world which perhaps haven't have been around for Western countries. So now having that is a lot helpful and gives us a lot of, you know, systems and, and ways with which even a common language with which we can articulate what's happening and what we need to do to address those issues.
1: Yeah, and if I can just jump jump back on there as I would, yeah, I'm going to piggyback on what <laughs> some of the things both of you have said, but um, so I come from from Canada, and that's um, a developed country, and I'm now working um, in a developing country, and so talking about um, policies and, and, and whatnot, um, we have policies at our school, but those policies mean nothing beyond the walls of our school. We do not have local authorities, we do not have child protection services, so we do the best we can within the four walls um but it's 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 quite difficult you know that that, that back in canada um some of the, the the issues that i've dealt with child protective services would be called right away we would be able to do welfare checks on students who have been absent for a prolonged period of time without um you know a reason um here i i was personally asked if i wanted to go to the house of, uh, of a child and um you know i didn't feel so comfortable doing that but i would have um if, if it came to that but yes it's um you know we're all we all come from different backgrounds we're all in different parts of the world um but definitely coming from a a developed to a developing country um it's it can be very very challenging i'll just leave it at that
0: and just sort of touching on a few of those sort of cultural challenges you mentioned um i don't know if there's any any further light that that you can that can shed on that um but it'd be great to hear about maybe some of the the ways perhaps you've, you've looked to overcome these these challenges um so yeah it'd be great to to hear a bit about that.
2: Yeah I think our challenges here are going to be so different culturally to what um that you two are are experiencing and I think that there are two challenges here I'm going to take them both separately we've got an internal challenge so internally um with staff and students reporting concerns so students, um, child-on-child abuse, that sort of thing, Um, and then staff thinking maybe about concerns about colleagues, so looking at low-level concerns. And I think on the student side of things, we do a survey every year, and what comes forward every year is their reluctance to what they see as um, perpetuating a snitch culture. And so what we've had to really do there is actually talk about how important it is to call people out and then call them in um, on their behaviors. And so it's been very much about arming them and giving them a toolkit on which to do that. And we've recognized that particularly around sex and consent, where we've trained ambassadors to deal with this specific issue, it's when there's they feel that there's enough in number to be as a part of that movement, then they feel much more comfortable in doing that. And I think that's what we've built on within the staff culture as well, actually making staff feel that it they will be heard, they will be listened and they will be given a safe space. Um, and that culturally has enabled us, I think, to, to move over that bridge and has actually increased reporting both within the student body and the staff body. We saw it mirrored and what was really interesting was, I don't know if there's a, a correlation between one or the other, and and which one came first so did increased staff reporting translate itself into the student body or was it was it vice versa or was it just everything together um and and i think externally the challenge that we have is very much about I think in the past, we have deferred to the experts. So we've considered when we've got a police involved in investigation or a child protection case, then actually the police might be the expert. And through experience, I've come to realise that it's not necessarily that that's the case, that we might be holding the expertise and the knowledge around that young person. And it's about having the confidence in order to say what we think might be better for that young person and allowing us to drive the process rather than allowing the process to drive us um, and that's been through a series of very difficult learning experiences and recognizing that we sometimes are the experts in that as well.
3: So. If I could just add to that, I think cultural shifts are really, really important, but they have to go hand in hand with, you know, specific strategy as well. And I think that sort of balance between, you know, long-term cultural shifts, but also short-term quick gains is very important. I'll give you an example. So uh, some years ago, we had, you know, concerns being reported via email and, you know, teachers felt that, you know, I send an email and my work is done. But I think moving away from that was, was a huge step for us in terms of the quality and the accuracy of our reporting because we said, A, it's not confidential if it's in an email. And we established a system within the school. It's an internet system. It's completely confidential. Only the DSL and the deputy DSL have access to it. So they were happy that you know nobody else is gonna have access to what I'm reporting. It's just two individuals. And moving away from you know just the dependence on email, was a great strategy that it brought us to turnaround time of 48 hours. So we have everyone reporting concerns within 24 to 48 hours. We saw a 40% increase in the number of concerns being reported. And when we were able to share that data back with the teachers, they realized that there's so many things that we can spot. There's so many things that we can identify that may or may not lead to some sort of conclusive you know outcome but it's worth highlighting anyway and i think that led to both the strategy being successful as well as over time the culture changing to delet's point as well so it helped the culture change over time but it requires some you know real strategic thinking as well
2: yeah and you know i'd agree with that too we we um, implemented my concern uh which is a safeguarding reporting package Um, that's quite extensively used across the UK now and our levels of reporting went up too Uh, we're actually just going back and revisiting a little bit because some of our staff don't have access to computers so we're having to think about how we might re-engage those staff um, so that they feel comfortable and confident in reporting as, as well
1: yeah, um, I, I, I'm going to agree with you. I, so when I did my safeguarding training um, to all staff members at the beginning of the year, I said, if there's one message that I would like for you to remember um, at the end of this presentation, it's when in doubt or if in doubt, report. And that means report on students. If it's a cause for concern that you have, that means report to a self-report. If, you know, there's something that you might have done that could be is construed in a different way. If it's a low level concern against another adult, please report. And um, as you mentioned, Sydney, uh, we've also sort of changed how we uh, or who has access to these types of reports. And this year is the first year that myself, the DSL and my DDSL are the only ones that have access to things like self reports and low level concerns and reminding staff that these are confidential that these are not going to be seen if you if you are um doing a low level concern on another adult that adult will not know about it you know um has we've seen a a significant um, increase in all types of reporting um so um, i you know when in doubt report let that be a message to, to all those that are listening you know it is better to report something than to not and regret it afterwards
0: And that's really interesting. And, w- and when it comes to you know that that reporting piece um, around making students feel comfortable about coming coming forwards, and uh, as Sydney you mentioned that great initiative that that you that you had put in there, um, it would be great to see how how you therefore encourage students um, in other ways um, to report safeguarding issues of what is such a you know a tricky thing to to sort of deal with. I suppose if if you're a young you know student um, young adult, um, it'd be great to if you could speak to to some of those.
3: So this is my favorite topic. So stop me whenever you need to. But um, I think a big shift happened for us when we, we when we involved children in the safeguarding process. Uh, we developed what is now the children's safeguarding team uh, and you know, gave them the responsibility of educating the community, you know, establishing some sort of systems in place for themselves because it wasn't about us doing things or putting things in place for them but working with them to say you know what can we do to make your your experience better and we have something uh, along the lines of a design thinking challenge in the school across the school from grade you know 5 to 12 and that's something that we put to the kids and they came up with an online platform that is anonymous but children still have to log in with their school credentials so that's a, that's a safety mechanism in place they own the back end of the website And all of them are trained by a wellness and mental health clinic here called Lighthouse Arabia. So they're certified uh, mental health first aiders who work anonymously. They run the website anonymously. So when the concerns come in from the student population, they're already trained to deal with those concerns. And if they're not able to address those issues, then they're trained to escalate it to our counselor. So I think giving children autonomy and getting them involved in the process has really been a monumental shift for us. In fact, we don't do anything around safeguarding and child protection without our children's involvement, uh, to, to the to the extent that it's possible, uh, because that has seen a huge shift in awareness, in understanding, in reporting as well. And I think that's it's it's been incredible to watch how their creativity and their innovation skills uh, come to the fore even in a challenge like this.
2: Yeah, I would totally agree with that, Sydney, as well. We've um we've got a group that works here um called Culture Champions, and they've been looking at bystander apathy this term, and they've they've produced a, a newsletter and they're doing an assembly about it. And I think long term, the way that we'd like to develop them, like you, is is getting them to be, uh, I think we may we may hit some issues in terms of maybe them dealing with the mental health side of things but um making the the policies and things like that more student friendly and really getting them on board i think it's i mean yeah you're you're so right they come up with the most amazing ideas and um really creative as well and i think the them being able to report concerns confidentially is really important we have a similar system here it's called whisper and they can um use that to to report anything confidentially to us. But I also think that there is a a real need for us and our safeguarding teams to be really approachable, um, being out there so that they can see that we are on their side, we're helping them, we're, you know, nice people that they can come and so that they get the opportunity to build that trust as well. And the other element that I just add before I finish is that one of the barriers i think to reporting safeguarding issues for the for young people is they don't know what's going to happen with their information and and they make themselves hugely vulnerable um you know somebody i heard somebody once say that vulnerability and the essence of vulnerability is giving somebody your story when you don't know what they're going to do with it and i think safeguarding is so much about that and so really educating the young people about what's going to be done with their information what, once we have it and the supportive process that's going to be put in place I think is really really important as well
1: yeah. um, I'm going to jump on what you said Delight, about being approachable I was going to say um, building relationships building rapport um, I'm new at this school. This is my first um, my first academic year, and um, I spend the good part of the first two months just going into classrooms, making my presence known, making the students know who is Ms Jennifer, What does Ms Jennifer do? How can Ms Jennifer help you? Um, and so I definitely, um, I believe that t- to be in this role, um, it's not just to be knowledgeable about safeguarding and about child protection, but but having that approachability that students feel comfortable to come and to um, disclose, you know, private information to you. Um, One thing that I have um, sort of advocated to my students is that if they ever come to disclose something, so I'm the counsellor and DSL, so I've got two two different hats on. Sometimes they overlap, sometimes they don't. And that's okay. If a student doesn't know who they're coming to see, that's fine. I'll be the one to decide that afterwards. But I always like to give them um, some power. So if they disclose um, some kind of safeguarding issue to me, um, I'm going to say you know, thank you very much for for sharing this with me. What would you like me to do? So instead of telling them, this is what I'm going to do, I ask them, what would you like me to do? I ask permission if, their parents might be, you know, if I could contact their parents and have a meeting about this. um, Is it okay if I inform? So, um, and and I found that that has really, really helped me um, to gain the trust of students um, because too often um, policies are followed too closely and sometimes you have to go between the lines sometimes you have to go outside of the lines you know it is case by case and so i I just feel as if yeah um building those relationships as you said being approachable and giving the students um some some power in in what to do with the information that they're disclosing has has helped um, us with with our disclosures here
0: and and looking at some i suppose some of the sort of the key examples that that you've worked in in your in your different schools um it'd be and you can go into as much detail or as little as, as, as you feel comfortable in doing um but it'd be great to hear a bit about some of the safeguarding issues that perhaps each of you have um have, have, have encountered in, in your different school settings
3: i think so so just going back to putting a system in place and having technology you know do some of the work for us has really helped because now when we have parents or uh, adults reporting, uh, we require them to put in a a level of detail that was not there previously. So actually specify, is this a, you know, abuse issue or is this neglect or are you seeing self-harm? So having those subcategories in place um, just makes it easier for us to, uh, you know, dive into the data and look at what exactly is going on across, um, you know, vertically, horizontally as well. So for example, during the pandemic, we saw an increase in mental health issues or you know, abuse at home. Those those kind of things came out strongly during the pandemic. When we came back from the pandemic, we saw that social issues and peer-on-peer issues were, were heightened because of the two or three-year gap that, you know, kids were not meeting each other and this was a new experience for them. So I think those are some of the things that have come across strongly in the last couple of years. We've seen a, a lot of online issues in the last couple of months as well. Uh, and I think all of those are connected. They, they sort of follow a trajectory as well but i think the key for us was the detailed reporting the more information we have to work with the better our understanding of situations are we can spot trends we help you know the counseling department you know proactively plan to address some of those issues in the work that they do so i think that has really been a, a great help for us
2: mm-hmm. wow gosh i i can what what i was going to say absolutely just mirrors what Sydney's just said. So the issues that we've been dealing with specifically really um, over the last couple of years have been mental health related. Um, A huge spike, particularly in controlling type behaviours, eating disorders, OCD, depression, anxiety. Um, Very difficult to say how much of those are born out of the pandemic and how much we would have seen anyway. How much is that, there are there in greater number or how much is due to increased reporting and and wanting to talk about mental health. Um, I think we certainly saw a rise in boys thinking that it's now okay to speak about their mental health. So I think, again, it's probably a combination of the two online issues as well. And also the lack of social awareness around some of the issues that we'd have expected them to have negotiated earlier on which they didn't because they were in lockdown are now coming to play a little bit further up Um so that's that relationship and friendship issues in particular, and not really knowing how to navigate them because they haven't had those skills that they'd have had earlier on I think so yeah I, I think it doesn't seem to matter where in the world you are I think it looks like the issues certainly for, for me and Sydney are the same Jennifer I don't know about you um, well, I'm working in a primary
1: school setting. Um, so I used to work in a K to 12. Now it's it, it's uh, early years to, to, to grade five. So um, not seeing as much of the mental health um, issues as I would meet in some of the older grades. That's not to say that there aren't. But um, what I've I mean, everything that you've said so far, I mean, we are experiencing the the effects of the pandemic now we are seeing it in the children now and their lack of social skills and their lack of understanding how to play um pr- proper play with one another in um having spent too much time online and and so inappropriate um topics that that are you know for the, that are not appropriate to, to the child's age that we're sort of having to come in and and, and sort of um, talk to them about for us um i would say in, in the six months that i've been at the school um the major safeguarding issue is really um, parental abuse and neglect, um, more so. And, and and that can lead to some mental health, you know, to distressing issues. But as I mentioned, um, I'm, I'm still in a part of the world where corporal punishment is accepted, and where there are no child protection laws outside of schools. And so, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, a parent has doesn't see hitting their child as being wrong because that's a generational thing. It's been going on forever, and who am I, you know, to to, to say otherwise? Um, I do. I think we're all working in international school settings, yes. So um, there's affluent neglect, and that is a big, big new topic. That even for my staff, um, when I talk to them about what affluent neglect is they, they automatically go to neglect, um, you know, parents not being able to provide basic needs to children. And I said, well, affluent neglect is not being able to provide basic emotional needs. Parents who are absent, parents who um, throw a tablet at their child when they're crying so children don't even understand how to regulate their emotions, they're just fixed on, on, on electronics. So um, going back to, you know, what were some of the strategies, I think both of you mentioned, or I think the life might have been you, is educating parents. Because as both counsellor and DSL, um, what I'm noticing is when I meet with parents, the piece of the puzzle um, is is there, you know, like a lot of the times the issues that I'm dealing with stem from what's happening outside of school, not necessarily what's happening in school. So as much as I can get in front of parents, whether that's um, in discussions or workshops, face to face, online, um, drip feeds that I do through through our social media, you know, pages, um, any kind of of information that we can provide to parents we're finding that that's where we need to put a lot of our our safeguarding focus parents and staff members Um, you know all of us here are safeguarding experts um but our staff are not and we can't expect them to be so um you know making sure that staff are continuously reminded of you know um warning signs to look out for and what to do versus what not to do if a safeguarding issue comes to you um, i i feel that yeah we Constant reminders are what's necessary on the parent side, on the student side, and on the staff side.
0: It'd be great just to, to, to sort of look at those. Sort of strategies i know we've touched on it a little bit um earlier in the conversation but just just sort of diving a bit deeper into those and sort of looking at the different strategies that you've each put in place um to sort of help alleviate some of the issues that, that you've that you've also just spoken to um it'd be great to, to to hear about that um some of those sort of practical and actionable um, strategies that you put in place and maybe a little bit about some of the outcomes that that, that you've um that you've seen from those um if, if you've if you've gained outcomes from them already um, it'd be great to hear about those because um, i know that listeners so this will find it incredibly useful and,
3: and, and insightful. So I think one of the things that has really worked for us is the strategy that came from our student to, uh, group actually. Um, they said they, they came to us and they sat with us and they said you know a lot of the reading material we share with parents is sometimes heavy you know it's sometimes it's not it's not easy to read and go through sometimes it's disturbing and not necessarily something that parents want to read so we came up with a strategy of giving parents practical tips that they could use so the kids worked on you know how do you ensure that your child's social media is safe you know what are the telltale signs to know your child is being bullied online and so we do a weekly update to parents on practical things like what's what's available on Netflix right now and what should your child be watching or not watching and i think those are the things that parents have now started looking forward to receiving so that they're more aware otherwise parents can sometimes be unaware of the things that are available to their children and i think looking at shows that are available looking at you know video games that are in the market looking at trends across the world or what's what's happening on TikTok that could be a potential threat to your child i think that's something that has really taken the parent community uh aback because they they realize now that kids have access to so much content uh that that is absolutely you know uh could be so dangerous to their children that they didn't have awareness of before. And I think that that strategy really worked for us. So we've we've toned down the, the, the research and the reading and all of those things. And we've amped up the practical strategies that parents can use for conversations at home. And of course, you know, safety measures that they can take as well.
1: Sydney, if you don't mind me asking, you, you you talked about weekly messages that you're delivering to parents. How on what platform are you are you doing that? Because I did talk about you know um, the importance of educating parents, but what we're noticing is when we do host workshops around safeguarding, we don't draw a lot of <laughs> parents to these safeguarding. Um, you know, when it's academic, yes. When it's safeguarding, no. Um, the the our, our news our newsletter from our head of school, of which I'm quite. active on as DSL um, also we, we found that are not being read by too many people so how are you best engaging these parents and do you know that with these messages you're delivering they are being received you're able to, 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 to actually evaluate that
3: yeah so uh, like, like you said our whole school newsletter gets less readership um, it's not something that goes out to all the parents as it should. Uh, a lot of parents don't even see it in their emails. But what really gets our the best readership is our grade level newsletters because we do an end of week update from you know our, our team leaders and they talk about everything that has happened over the past week and everything parents need to know for the week ahead. And I think that's something that parents look forward to. It's the one-stop shop for all the information they need be aware of everything that's going on. I think that's where we put our safeguarding updates as well. We also do a bi-weekly video from the principal. A lot of parents don't like to read, we, we figured, uh, but they do have time to go through a seven-minute video on YouTube while they're in the car or while they're dropping their kids to school. So we do a bi-weekly video update from the from the principal and, 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 and key members of our staff. And we try and drip feed some information in there as well. I think the key for us was finding different formats and looking at which formats work for which age group. So when we want to send out messaging to children, we rely heavily on Instagram. Uh, That's where the children are. They follow our school official school Instagram page. So we use that heavily for our messaging to children. When it's with parents who are really, really involved in school life, uh, the newsletters work really well. But there's a group of parents, there's a cross section that rely on video updates and updates on Facebook. We see a, a lot less engagement on Facebook than we see on other platforms. But knowing where your audiences are, who's reading or who's consuming what kind of content on which format is I think key to getting your message across because one format may not work for everybody.
2: Yeah, we, we had the same problem actually, Jennifer. I actually reached out to our parents to ask them what they would read and what they would do and um, we're just in the process of actually we we do a termly newsletter so gosh all credit to you Sydney for doing it weekly that that's um mm-hmm. that's a real commitment uh, our, our termly newsletter I think it does get a, a reasonably good readership but you know it's about engaging everybody so we're going to do some podcasts yeah. um again so you know when people are walking the dog or if they're watching their child play on the side of a football pitch it might be something they're going to listen to. So that's that's the way that we're going to approach it. Um, the other thing which I think has worked well for us here, um, particularly that thinking round about the safeguarding team, is that we now have um, reflective meetings. So if we've had a particularly difficult case to deal with, we will now sit down and have a lessons learned meeting. And we will look, each one of us will look at what we feel we've learned personally, but also professionally from a particular case where we feel that we might have done something differently um, or even actually look at whether a decision that was made was appropriate and, and the reasons behind that. And um, we, we trialed last year doing it slightly differently. And it, it was largely because we couldn't get everyone together in the same room, a particular moment in time. But we, we got feedback from each of the members of the safeguarding and pastoral team separately around different cases we'd looked at and so when we actually got round to speaking about the cases we didn't know who had said which bit and it was really interesting and i think it enabled everyone to feel that their voice was being equally heard and we always look at those lessons learned meetings and we think about how we might use those lessons in terms of policy review practice changes um and we'll often go out if it's appropriate to The young person or the parents that have been involved in that case as well to ask them what we could do differently to get some external feedback so that we don't become too insular and inward looking. So that's something that's worked really well for us.
1: Brilliant. I'm still I'm I'm still relatively new in this role, Um, so I'm trying to analyze data, what was done over the past years, uh, what according to teachers and leadership team members has worked what hasn't um, um, but yeah it's, it's, it's a learning process and um, i also think too that the world we're living in today is not the same as it was a year ago or two years ago or three years ago and so you know um, we, we sort of need to change with, with the world and so we're you know we're we're in our, our second term now and the students are finally settling in um and so we're we're, we're we're able to to look at things a little bit differently now. And definitely we will have some changes to our policies for next year. But for this year, being the first full uninterrupted academic year, keep our fingers crossed, we're not done yet over the last few years. Um, you know, it's, uh, we we sort of needed to see what we were dealing with. And uh, I think we've got a good idea of that. So moving forward, it's how can we best support students and parents in this new post-COVID that we're living in?
0: That leads me... Uh... That leads me perfectly onto the next question really just sort of and, and the last question so sort of looking forwards um, in, into the future you know what what, are, what what do you foresee as some of the maybe the key challenges um, around safeguarding um, in each of your institutions or maybe just more generally as <clears throat> sort of general trends um, going forwards?
2: Do you know that's a really interesting question and I really struggled um, with that. I think in the year uh, every year we sort of try to predict you know what might happen based on trends and patterns in previous years i think safeguarding is at a really interesting point in the uk at the moment in that we are definitely seeing there's an increased awareness across the whole country around safeguarding particularly around sexual violence and sexual harassment um i think for me i, I almost sense there's something Big et- that might happen um, over the next couple of years. But I think maybe as a general pattern, as a general trend, I think what we're seeing now is that when the time is right, if there is an issue, I think people's voices are now being heard. and And I think that the big challenge or the issues that will come to safeguarding will be areas where people have maybe not felt heard in the past and now the time is right for them to be heard. So that's so that's an extremely poor answer, but me basically saying, I don't really know what's gonna happen in the next couple of years, but as Jennifer's just alluded to, it's about safeguarding is about being proactive. So where you do know what the issues are in your setting and in your area, how you might prevent them and that really crucial groundwork that you can do that, but it's also allowing enough flexibility to be reactive to the issues that are arising as well so um yeah may- maybe not a great answer um but i i think my three-word answer would be i don't know <laughs>
1: So, hold on, you, you you just, I don't know either, but you used the word proactive when talking about safeguarding, which is what it is, it's proactive as opposed to um, child protection, which is more reactive. And I think that one of the main challenges that, that, that I'm seeing from safeguarding is a lot of the work that we're, I'm doing, my, my team and I are doing, is reactive. So, how do we get to that proactive? How do we get to the beginning part so that we don't have to deal from a reactive sort of point that that that, mm-hmm. that we're seeing, so um, I think that's the biggest challenge. Um, is yeah, getting ahead of the problem instead of having to to deal with it once it's once it's already there. So, but as as Tendulite said, I don't really know either. So yeah, it's a very good question, and I think one that as time goes on and as new challenges arise, um, the answer will change.
3: I think if every DSL had a crystal ball, that would help in all the work that we do. But um, for me, I think so. One, I'm going to choose my words carefully here, but you know, we've seen a number of so we've seen a rise in a particular kind of um, case in the in the U.A. here. But based on where you live and and where you're working, I think working within the parameters of what legislation and statutory guidance allows. Um, you know, not approaching certain issues and topics because the laws of the land perhaps don't allow it uh, is a gray area for us. So what can we address? What should we address? What should we ignore because we're not allowed to and yet be supportive of kids who are going through, you know, a bunch of experiences or or risks in different ways that may not have, you know, written policy around is something that is is personally uh, an issue that we will have to think about going forward. Um, having said that, I think also while we've seen increase in reporting, I think there's still a lot of societal stigma, uh, shame, uh, you know, belief that family issues t- should stay within the family, whether you're Asian or Emirati or Arab or, you know, some of those cultural uh, things come uh, join us because it's it's the same irrespective of where you live or where you come from. And I think so while we are seeing increased reporting, I don't think we see accuracy of reporting. I think we still need to work with uh stakeholders to see you know details coming out in those reports so that the mechanisms we put in place or the support we're able to provide uh meets the need, so to speak, as opposed to being some sort of a generic quick fix to a problem that is actually deeper or you know deeper rooted in something that we haven't identified. So the quality of reporting and I think you know, working our way as as counselors, as teachers, as educators still being able to support kids despite legislation guidance you know the laws of the land etc
0: fantastic excellent well thank thank you so much for for sharing those insights you know super super valuable and i am obviously um uh, uh an area that, that members all around the world um are, are sort of thinking about very very strongly in their different school settings so yeah hugely appreciate you sharing sharing that and um and yeah maybe hopefully we can do a, a part two session soon um but yeah if there's any any final thoughts then then do 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 jump in but um yeah other than that you know thank you so much for for joining and um yeah looking forward to a part two session soon hopefully
3: thanks i think i must say i know where the three of us are here but the work is really an army there's an army of people behind us who do everything that we talked about so while we're here as the face of you know safeguarding and child protection really credit goes to people on the ground teachers parents caregivers adults who who put all of this in place and make sure kids receive the support that they do
2: yeah well said